Hey, welcome to Simply Faithful. My name is Eric. I am the pastor of Kishwaukee Community Church near Rockford, Illinois. I'm Gray Ewing, and I pastor New Valley Church in central Phoenix, Arizona. Here in Simply Faithful, our hope is to have Christian conversations without the hype as we dig into real, deep, meaningful things about life and faith and ministering to people. Yeah, to be straightforward, we want more and more people to have these types of conversations. That's the whole reason why we are doing this. And so we are so excited that you're listening today. We'd love for you to share it with a friend, uh, post it on social media somewhere, and let others know so we can have a bigger group to have this conversation with. This week, Christ and Culture. Welcome back, everybody. Glad to have you today for another discussion. And today I wanted to talk with you, Eric, about Christ and culture. This is something that is very deep and long in terms of uh, Christians discussing it. And today, I don't want us to solve every single tension that exists with these things, and we'll define it in just a moment. But I really want today to exist as kind of a flyover view of a big discussion that touches in lots of different areas of life. And so we'll start with this. So Christ and culture is a way of talking about a tension. So how would you put words to the tension or what we're actually describing, Eric? Yeah. So actually, this is maybe the place where we already, I'm going to make this complicated for you, Gray. But um, but it's a way of essentially saying that Jesus and his kingdom has a certain way of thinking, way of living, way of being. And that that kingdom exists in relationship to kingdoms of this world and kingdoms of this world um, include cultures. Cultures are ways of thinking and living and being and the kind of stories and artifacts that reinforce that. And those two things exist in tension with each other because cultures on the one hand are a product of God's common grace. There's good parts of them. And on the other hand, they're corrupted by sin. There's parts of them that are evil and need to be challenged. We as Christians exist as human beings that are formed both by God's kingdom and by the culture that we live in. And so when we talk about Christ and culture, one of the things I think is really important, and this is where I don't know if we're going <laughs> to even proceed on this in the same way, is to stress that we're not just talking about how Christians engage with the world, but we're also talking about how Christians work through the tensions that should be in their own hearts between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Yeah, I don't see that intention at all. I think that um, what we see in Scripture presents something that's maybe is at first glance confusing and and hard to kind of get to the bottom of, which is I think where a lot of this tension comes from, which is that we live in a good created world that God has created by His own hand, and so there's there's a sense in which you know everything that it's out there is here because he made it right and even in culture he created the human beings that do good things and also um, produce good things but the tension exists even in the very first book of the bible when you see that what cain does after he murders abel is he goes off and he builds a bunch of cities and he 
establishes music and he established, you know, he, he kind of has a cultural civilization. It's almost negative in the text. Well, are cities wrong? Are, is music wrong? No. They're, even from the beginning, we have to kind of tease out what the scriptures are saying. And then we get all these things in the New Testament about how we should be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, we have this idea of the heavenly city of which we are members. And yet we're also members of uh, countries and earthly cities. And so there's a long history of thought in the Christian worldview kind of writings of how these two things interact with one another. And, uh, you know, there's no way that we can catch all of that today. What I wanted to do is bring it into the modern era today and talk about the ways that uh, modern Christians have been talking about this and we've been doing so using the categories of Richard Niebuhr for probably the last, I don't know, was it 30, 40 years at least, maybe longer than that. Um, and uh, so Niebuhr's categories, which I'm going to describe for, for us in just a minute, we'll do so together, Eric, have been much maligned and uh, much misunderstood and much criticized. But it's amazing that even after all these years, nobody talks about this subject without ever referencing the categories that he brought, what, some 40 or 50 years ago when he wrote his book, The Seminal Work, Christ and Culture. Well, here's the thing about Niebuhr's categories is that while I do think there's some critiques that are valid, most of the time what people are really criticizing is the fact that Niebuhr is intentionally neutral towards all five categories. He's just trying to describe the ways that Christians relate to culture. He even, if anything, says that there's probably given times and places where each category is right. And I think that's the thing that most people find triggering because they want to say that some of the categories are wrong and some are right. And I, in fact, would say that one of one of his five categories, I don't think can square with the biblical description, even though I think the other four, he's right, all have places. And it is true, though, that the fifth category is absolutely a way that many Christians have related to culture, even though I think that is biblically problematic. Okay, so to that end, Eric, let's go ahead and dive into Niebuhr's categories and do our best to not critique as we go at first, but maybe describe in the best way possible. These are positions that Christians tend towards, and you may exist in one category. When we say this, you may say, like, yes, that's that's me. Like, I, I think that's what the Scripture teaches. Or you may kind of do a, like, well, that's partially true, and but it needs to be balanced with this other thing. And all that is very good, but I just want to do a little flyover here and describe what those positions are. So the way that I want to do this is to just present two extremes of a continuum and then see how the other three kind of mediating positions are fit on this on this kind of continuum of, of thought. So on the one end of the continuum, there is the Christ against culture. Christ against culture advocates would say that really it's a withdrawal paradigm. When it comes to culture, what we need to do is to create a completely alternate community, uh, or as much so as as possible, and withdraw from culture so that we can, you know, preserve Christianity. So Christ is against culture. Culture mostly, if not fully, represents what is wrong with the world. Development is something that's to be suspicious of. And so Christ against culture. What would you add to that? Let me give an example for each of these, Gray. Maybe you can describe the categories. But for Christ against culture, the easiest category to think of is a group like the Amish, who really have tried to create a completely separate society that assesses everything on its own terms and has very little overlap with 
the surrounding culture. In its purest form, that would be Christ against culture. Secondly, on the other end of the spectrum, so if we think about that being on the left side all the way to the right side, we would say the Christ of culture, whereas the Christ against culture is more of a withdrawing paradigm. This is more of the complete accommodation paradigm, which is to say that what this person is doing is looking for ways to see how God is at work in and through culture. Like the things that we have in this world, we have because God permitted, allowed, and even helped create them. So therefore, it by virtue of it being in the world, it is a good thing to be used for the kingdom. And so uh, we want to accommodate the church, the faith to those things. And even more than that, it tends to assume that being a good member of society, a good member of your culture, right? Agreeing with your culture and being a good Christian are the same thing. And this always, almost always assumes that there are certain cultures where this is true and not others. But the best example of this would be like Europe during the colonial period or some parts of America, say like 50 to 100 years ago, where the idea was basically that being a good Christian and being a good European or American, 100% the same thing, right? You don't really need any sort of spiritual formation. There's not really any ways that the church would be opposed to the values of the culture that just we want, you know, I, it's the, the, the missionaries back in the 1800s who would send home photographs or in the early 1900s videos where they would show what good Christians they were making in these foreign parts because they were all wearing white European shirts and playing cricket and stuff like that. Would you not also see some of this in like modern Christianity in terms of how much we bring in technology and uh, progress and um, useful things from the culture, you know, quote unquote, useful things to enhance the Christian message? No, not exactly. I mean, I do think there are ways in which maybe both the extremes of the culture war, like both the Christian nationalist right and the super woke left can fall into the trap where like really Christianity isn't adding anything to the conversation that the culture is already having. But in my mind, this is more than just appreciating some parts of the culture. When Niebuhr describes it, it's really assuming that the culture is intrinsically at least like 95% there in terms of Christian values, or at least that our culture is there. And I don't think most people fall into that extreme even though there's certainly, it's more that maybe like the dangerous extremes of a lot of people's issues when they think about Christ and culture would end up in this place than that I think there's very many people that are actually here in our world. That's a good word. So there are the extreme positions. So Christ against culture, Christ of culture um, on both ends of that, that spectrum. So there's lots, obviously, of mediating positions. And how we describe these is uh, somewhat difficult, of course, to do. But let me just start with the first one that he talks about, which is that we have Christ and culture in paradox. And the description of this would be that Christians live kind of in a dual citizenship kind of way. There, There is a sense in which a Christian has a foot in the world of culture and a sense in which they have a foot in the world of the church or the the city of God versus the city of man or something like that. And um, not that those are the same thing that Augustine was talking about in his book, but there's this kind of sense that 
Christians should be wary of the world and mostly kind of live their life in a separate community, but that there's kind of a reality that we do live here. And so there's a paradox that we have to kind of live in the tension of that. Yeah, it's hard for me to give a simple example of this one or of the other two that we're going to have, although this is maybe the hardest, because in many ways, if you think of this as a spectrum, like you're kind of putting it forward, great, this is right in the middle. So it's saying that there are ways we as Christians need to be in and working to change the world, but also there's ways in which that's antithetical to the kingdom of heaven and our citizenship there. And we kind of live in this constant state of tension and duality that we have to wrestle with. So moving right along, there is then Christ transforming culture. These are often called transformationalist uh, folks who say that not so much the idea of accommodation, like we talked about with Christ of culture, but there is a counterculture that we can seek to transform culture for Christ. And so this often is uh, the banter of the circles that Eric and I run in, uh, which is to say that we focus on common grace. There's a sense in which we try to identify the good things of culture, like where there's an impulse towards a biblical worldview and where there are distortions of that worldview. And so we identify those things. But in general, the goal of Christianity as it relates to culture is to be that light to it, to be that that alternative that is both, it redeems culture, is sometimes the language that we use. We take the good things and we you know, spit out the bones of, of what culture has to offer. I will say that this is in different forms what I think most people instinctively believe today. You can see it, again, in politics. We mentioned kind of the extremes, but one of the interesting things to me always when you look at the political conversations that happen in our world among Christians is that almost all Christians believe that Christianity should be in play in a way that informs and causes us to try to change the political system in the United States. That's true of what people would refer to as the religious right, and that's also true of what people would refer to as the religious left. They're kind of focused on different issues or have different opinions about how that should work. But if you think that part of being a Christian means that you should try to change the surrounding culture to better reflect what you think are the values that Jesus would have for it, then you've sort of on some level bought into transformationalism or hold that as a part of your view, at least. Yeah, I think that's basically correct. I mean, I think that whereas the Christ of culture accommodation model might have been the temptation of of European dominance, <laughs> the transforming culture, whether that's left or right, is kind of the dominant of American culture today. Lastly, there is the category of Christ above culture. I don't know that I fully understand Niebuhr in this regard, but let me just say something about it, and then you can help correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that what he means by that is that there's a sense in which Christ exists on a different plane above the culture, and that that we can use the culture to build up the kingdom, but there's it's still somewhat separate. But help me, help me with that category. Yeah, the way I think of it, and again, this is tricky because different people will read or there's some notoriously different ways of reading some of this. But it's that it leans in the direction, actually, of Christ against culture. It assumes that you're not going to have an easy reconciliation between the kingdom and the world, but it assumes that there are, one, some good common grace things we can take from culture, or just some good technological and scientific things or whatever. And there are some ways the sort of idea of just like relevance, like speaking in ways that the world understands that we can kind of do that. 
but that ultimately we got to say like we're a part of the kingdom of heaven and while we're while we're engaged in some ways in the world that's very much secondary but it would still be different than the Christ and culture and paradox because in the paradox model, there's still kind of a great value to the world. Is that what you would say? Yeah. So like the, the Christ and culture and paradox really does say you are a citizen, both of the kingdom of the world and a kingdom of heaven. Right. And that citizenship places real demands on you, right? Like, for example, you can be very politically engaged, whereas I feel like the Christ above culture model would be really suspicious of very much Christian political engagement even though it's okay with the idea that, you know, you might occasionally do stuff to help the church. Okay, so those are the categories that Niebuhr gives. Uh, Love it, hate it, want to nuance it. We all want to do lots of things with that. But uh, Eric, what do you want to do with it? And tell us which one's right. So what I want to do with it, and I'm going to shamelessly rip off Tim Keller here, but is I want to say that, so first of all, Christ of culture, it seems to me, is just problematic. And one of the interesting things is that, at least from people on our side of the theological spectrum, and honestly from most Christians, people feel like it's problematic to recommend that today. And a lot of that, frankly, is because we live in an era where I think most of us have had to grapple with that really is the colonizer religion kind of ideology and, you know, and led to a lot of abuses. But beyond that, I very much am an advocate for saying that what the other four views are is strategies that Christians should employ based off of what culture is like at a given point in time and what part of culture we are speaking to. That they're all strategies rather than being ideologies of which one is right and one isn't. Well, let me just say something before you describe that further, Eric, because I I think there are proof text for each one of these, right? I think I should have said that, right? There, there's, there's scriptural passages that seem to relate for, for each one, except for accommodation, except for the Christ of culture. I agree with you there that that is something that we can't really see scripturally, but the other ones have elements to them that bring a lot of wisdom, both practically, but also scripturally. There's plenty of, uh, of texts out there that you can use to say, this is where culture is. And so I think it's wise for uh, Keller's approach to say, like, how do we use these in real time? And I'll go ahead and spell out. So Keller gives this heuristic where he he says you can picture Christianity and the church and culture as existing in kind of four seasons. There's spring, where the church is really flourishing and starting to grow and taking root in a culture. And there are places in the world today where we would see that happening. There's summer, which is where Christianity is kind of dominant right now and in many ways is the kind of mainstream culture. There is autumn, which is where you're starting to see the culture become hostile to Christianity, but the church still has a sort of cachet and connection to parts of the culture. And then there's winter, where the culture is actively hostile to Christianity and people in the outside world really have no interest in it or are very opposed to it generally. And he would say, and he uses them as seasons because, of course, he's saying that there's a kind of rotation that different places can go through over the centuries. But what he wants to say is that each approach, each of the four approaches that aren't accommodation really fit well with one of those seasons. So transformationalism makes a lot of sense in the spring when the church is really flourishing and droves of people are coming to be Christians. We can say, how can we shape the surrounding culture to be more Christian? In the summer, you really have that kind of sense of paradox because 
you've made a lot of the changes that you're going to see as easy gains. And the church now is being increasingly tempted to accommodate itself to culture. So you have to kind of live in both of those places in the fall. It tends to be more Christ above culture where we're trying to still be relevant to the culture and you know, appropriate the things that are useful or good that we can honor, but that it's starting to become a lot tenser in that relationship. And then in winter, we kind of need a countercultural approach, a Christ against culture, which is to say we are an alternative community that's following Jesus as the world persecutes us. And which season are we in right now? Well, so first of all, I think that even Keller's heuristic is a little oversimplified. Oh, certainly. Yeah, this is only, and all this, there is a sense in which no matter what season it is, say that it's winter right now, that there are elements of culture that are still that can be transformed right and part of the issue is that all of this is mon- we haven't even gotten into this but all of this is monolithic in a problematic way like are we talking about the united states or are we talking about the town that i live in right which the answer might not be the same things i mean if you live in like southern alabama versus new york city you're probably going to feel like your immediate community is in a different place and the nation is in a different place most christians would view america either as being in autumn or in winter depending on their kind of inclinations i think yeah so speaking in broad brush and speaking you know with with all the with all the caveats i think it is really important to say that we, we probably are in winter right now for the most part in the United States. And we know that we have some folks that listen to this outside of the United States. But that to me gives some credence and some naming ability to some of the tensions that I feel now as we have some increasing hostility. And there is no doubt that there is increasing hostility towards uh, the faith right now in our culture. It's okay, even though I have had a kind of transformationalist approach, meaning wanting to see the good in culture, to, to lean a little bit more into the counterculturalism, into the creating that alternative community, because I think that's what's called for right now. Yeah, I sort of agree. But I'd like to take us off on a tangent and suggest why I also think in some ways this whole set of models we discussed is not entirely helpful. <laughs> All right. And my issue with it is that one of the things that already you can see got blurred in our discussion is the tension between Christ and culture and what's the relationship of Jesus and culture and then Christians and culture and how do we as Christians relate to the surrounding culture. And that then also gets into this set of issues about what things are true of how God is at work in the world versus what things should we be trying to do. And the place that I think is easiest to see where I feel this tension is that what many people tend to instinctively try to say is that God is at work in the world and he's at work working out his purposes. And so, you know, it, we know from God's revealed will that maybe this thing should be different about the world. Therefore, our job is to make that a reality. And that I think often misses a lot of realities, one of which is that cultures are notoriously difficult to actually change when you set out to do them. It's not as simple as like winning an election. And in fact, one of the ways that cultures change is by defining groups trying to change them as enemies and actually moving in the opposite direction. That when you set out to move the culture in one direction, if you do it poorly, what you actually do is cause the culture to move in the other direction. And so you're, what you're actually accomplishing is the opposite of what you're setting out to do. So, so just for a whole bunch of reasons, I feel like one of my concerns with a lot of these discussions is just to say that even let's say you say, I'm a transformationalist. I believe that Jesus transforms the culture. You've got to understand that you may well actually be making the culture more hostile to Christianity by trying to make it more Christian. 
Right. So let's just stay in the same vein here for for a minute and and stay in the the vein of critique, right? In some ways, you have to name the categories to even know what you're talking about, you know? So that's my intention in bringing it up. But as you mentioned, there are are other drawbacks as well. And one of those is is that this does fit very neatly into uh, more of a Western Christian approach, right? That would be another criticism, which is that when you are in a culture where it is illegal to be a Christian and you might die by proclaiming the name of Christ. And then a lot of these, you know, transforming culture kind of categories just kind of goes out the window, right? It's like it in a sense, right? In a sense, it doesn't because you are with every bit of defiance, you are transforming culture and everything. But it, it does kind of fit more neatly in the story of European Western kind of development and so that is a critique that is, I think, valid as well. It also assumes these modernistic things about the world and what's important about the world. Whenever you talk about culture with a kind of capital C, you're taking this very broad view of the world. You're usually talking about like the nation and, you know, like the New York Times and Hollywood and all of this stuff. And it, it tends to assume that we're supposed to operate on this really big systemic modernist scale, which is the soil on which most of the terrible things of the last 200 years has been performed. And there's a big part of me that feels like a proper Christian worldview wants to identify with the things closest to me first. And it's not that I don't care about the broader things, but that I expend most of my energy on sort of the immediate things. And so I just, there's a lot of people that that spend a lot of time fretting about the culture becoming less Christian, but don't even like know their neighbors, let alone are they like showing Christ's love to them and being engaged in the church in meaningful ways and stuff like that. And so I really want to emphasize communities and stuff like that. And that's also a very Western thing. You mentioned that, but, you know, identity markers like tribe and family in much of the rest of the world would be more central than sort of culture with a capital C. And so just in a lot of those ways, too, I'm a little suspicious of how this lends into a sort of modernistic, utopian, let's try to change the whole world way of thinking. That's right. And another one more critique from from my perspective. And we're kind of already talking about the tensions of transformation. That's really kind of where we've landed. But I think that we've rightly identified that that's where a lot of the spirit of our age is. But I agree. I think that churches tend to think that engaging culture means something like having an art gallery in your church. And therefore, if you have an art gallery in your church and you have artists that contribute to it, you've kind of created, uh, you know, you've kind of bridged a gap with the culture. Now, I'm not saying there's something necessarily wrong with having an art gallery in your church or anything like that, but that's not the answer, as you say, to culture. You know, what are we really talking about when we say culture? Because culture does have that kind of big C, little C distinction, but also the attention that we've talked about before, which is the attention between the church kind of big picture and the individuals who make it up. So we have uh, that kind of classic tension between the church as an organization and the church as an organism. And so by that, we mean that the church has functions of like, this is what the church is doing. These are our worship services. These are the things that we do as a church. It's an organization, but it also also is an organism. The church is the people of God. It is people being good neighbors and um, you know doing their jobs. And so I think that tension comes into this as well because what a lot of times people say is you know the church should relate to the culture in this way. And what they mean is organizationally, the church should have a voice here. There should be kind of like systematic approach to 
changing these laws or a presence here or release a statement there. And so there's kind of a a big picture, like this is how the church responds to the culture. Whereas we would say in many ways, some of those discussions should be more on the organism level, which is that you should be a good citizen. You should have a job, you know, being a plumber is part of culture, you know, it's not just being an artist, right? (laughs) Because being a plumber is is part of the the network of what it means to have a, a functioning and useful society with one another, which is in some ways the definition of culture. A thing that arises from some of that too that I want to name is that this also highlights why we can lose sight of really this tension has to exist within each human heart. Because I am the product both of a certain culture and of the work of the Holy Spirit. And those things are both in play for me. You mentioned the sort of like art galleries and Christian artists. And one of my frustrations with that whole discussion is that it seems to assume that just because someone is a Christian, that the art they create is going to encourage the culture to be more Christian. And that's just not true because one of the classic things that happens is that Christians can be in some ways Christian, while in other parts of how they view the world and think about their lives, they can very much still be imprisoned by the culture. That's true, for example, of how Christians viewed race a hundred years ago. It's true of how Christians have viewed materialism and consumption for probably the last three or four hundred years, that, that there's ways that like many Christians are very much in bondage to the values of the culture even as they're Christians. And so the idea that I as a Christian can go try to change the culture or that I'm somehow, you know, this agent apart from the culture is often missing the point too. Like the place that cultural change has to start is in our hearts, right? We need to be transformed. We need to have Jesus oppose the worldly parts of the culture in our hearts before we can talk about changing anything outside of ourselves. So trying to land this plane a little bit for us, we've gone off in lots of different directions, which I think you have to do because it's a huge topic. We've beat up on the categories. We've beat up on all the different ways that uh, that it could be unhelpful. Let's take just a minute to say, what is it from a Christian perspective that Christians should be doing as it relates to culture? And um, that may need some further definition, but what are some things that you think Christians and culture we should be doing, we should be focusing on even either at this present moment or just always? Yeah, if I could boil it down, here's what I'd say. One, you need to understand the culture you're a part of, what it thinks and how it's shaped you. Two, you need to understand and constantly be revisiting God's word and God's truth in a way that is allowed to challenge that. And you can also draw on the wider community of believers over the course of history and from different parts of the world and different cultures to help recognize and challenge that. So those two things help you just name where you're at and the ways that Jesus is challenging that. And that's going to be a process that lasts our whole lives in some ways. And then three out of that, you say, how can I live in the world where I'm still a part of the world, but where I'm being faithful to Jesus as I do it? That's right. I think by necessity, this means that you start at the smallest circle possible, which is your family and making sure that you have an understanding of how your family is going to interact with the world and what kind of things you do and and don't do and kind of think about it on that level. Like for my kids, I want them to, for instance, have friends who are not Christians. I also want them to not be on the internet all the time as, you know, five-year-olds, you know, stuff like that. So that is part of engaging the culture is kind of making family decisions. 
then you broaden out the circle a little bit more. You say, like, do I know my neighbors? I have, you know, one neighbor who is a pastor, uh, one neighbor who is a drug dealer, and one neighbor who is a guitarist. And, you know, they're all doing different things. (laughs) So... (laughs) Hopefully. That's right. How does Christ interact with that that culture, right? Um, and that is a culture, right? It's my neighborhood culture. And so think in concentric circles going outward from the home rather than like in such big picture in terms of like, how do we change the world through legislation? Although there obviously is a place for that and a season, as Keller would say, for that kind of thinking. It's not wrong, but it's not, it's not the most applicable thing to begin with. I just want to... Just as a side note mention too, something that your neighborhood example should remind us of is that the answer of what is culture is never really monolithic for given people too. Well, all three of those neighbors that you described are definitely in some ways going to have some American similarities probably in culture. It's very likely that the way that, say, the, the, the drug guy interacts with the world is different from the way that the pastor thinks about and interacts with the world. I remember when I was in college, I went to this apologetics talk where they were trying to teach college students apologetics. And then a couple of nights later, I went with a friend to meet this mutual friend who was a drug shaman you know, who had like hallucinogenic teas brewing on his stove and stuff. And I remember just sitting out on the balcony of that house while they were smoking pot thinking, you know what, all the stuff that they tried to teach us about how to talk with Jesus about people, like 0% of that is at all going to be helpful to this group of people that I'm sitting with right now. And that was actually important for me to recognize in terms of some of the strengths and weaknesses of how we as Christians relate to the culture. That's right. You got to know where you are and um, <laughs> you got to be have some analysis of that. I mean, my neighborhood is very distinct with, you know, within like 10 streets or so. It's very bohemian and very, I don't know, there's just a, there's a distinct culture to it, but you just go a few neighborhoods over and it's very different, you know? And so even, even saying something like, here's how we reach Phoenix is like a city of 5 million people. Um, it's really kind of a useless measure, but that's not to say that we hide from culture. It's that we engage it on the levels that matter the most. Yeah. Also a part of that is that's why when we think about it, we need to not just assume culture is a monolith, but we really need to listen to people, learn from people, understand the actual people we're engaged with, rather than just resorting to one-size-fits-all solutions. Exactly. And I think it's also really important to say uh, curiosity, on the one hand, is a good thing. Why is someone into something? You know, why do they work that way or do that thing? What do they believe about the world? That kind of curiosity is good. And also enjoyment. You know, let's not let's not pass over that, which is the fact that there are things in our culture, however you want to define that, that God has given to us to enjoy. There is the art gallery, there is you know music, there is jobs and, and labor and community service projects and all kinds of things that we say are culture that we should be engaged in and not be suspicious of just because we can't get our, our wrap our arms around exactly how you're supposed to engage with it doesn't mean that you don't engage, right? You do engage, you enjoy, you have glory to God, and you seek to understand why you're doing it. That is a very good note, Gray to leave this discussion on and shift to a different discussion about Christ and culture, which is a discussion about what is particularly been good in our culture that you've been finding this week. We always end our show this way by talking about something that's been good or true or beautiful that we've been enjoying. And so, Gray, what's been good for you? 
Eric, do you know what the fastest growing non-professional sport is in America? I'm guessing it's not something with video games. <laughs> no. Normally, you're up to date on all sports things, so that's just really surprising to me, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> There's the ones with the round balls and the ones with the non-round balls yes. and the ones with the discs, all the sports. Let me talk about a round ball one. The fastest growing lay sport in America is pickleball. Have you seen this? Have you seen people playing pickleball before? I haven't heard about it. My impression is that it is people of a certain level of maturity that especially gravitate towards it from the people I know engaged with it. <laughs> yes. You mean uh, it's often at retirement communities? Is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is true. And yet... I was just on the pickleball court just a few days ago, and there was not a single person there over 45, say. It was all young people. It is, uh, it's this really fun sport. I've got a group of guys that I'm friends with here that are, have gotten into it, and uh, it's kind of become part of the, the church culture at our, at our church. So, um, you know, it's a really fun game. And uh, one of the things that's, that's fun about it is that it is accessible to lots of different ages. So I've taught it to my kids. You know, it is at a lot of retirement communities because it's easy enough on the body that uh, people that are older can play it. And there's kind of a great, you know, a great game in a sense allows different people to play and, and be engaged with it. And yet still also has like an ultimate level of skill that you can go beyond. That's, I'm not really putting great words to that, but I think you catch what I'm saying. And so there's a good, good level of entry. And yet there's a long way to go to become pro and um, pickleball is great. It's been a lot of fun. So if you're, if you're not familiar with it at all, one thing that's obnoxious about it is the name pickleball. Every time you say it, you feel so immature. But other than that, it's fun. It's kind of a combination between uh, tennis and ping pong is often the analogy that's used. So it's done uh, often on remade tennis courts. So it's a smaller court than a tennis court. But usually they can make two courts out of one tennis court. And so because it's so popular, most cities are uh, taking the initiative to transform older, unused tennis courts that are outside in, and doubling them up into pickleball courts. Yeah, it's kind of a softer uh, plastic ball, more like ping pong, but bigger. And um, it's a paddle. It's a paddle sport that has some similar rules to tennis, but it's different in other ways. And uh, it's a great leveler. It's a great way to to get out and enjoy. And um, trying to do so more before the heat wave sets in here in Phoenix, because then it'll be impossible. Well, if that sounds like the sort of thing that you would like, then that's probably the sort of thing that you would like. <laughs> I really don't understand why I'm never interested in these discussions of sport things, because I like games. And I like exercising, but I feel like all of my exercise and all my physical activity, I prefer to be alone. And so I'm not sure why I always feel the disconnect, but there's something about doing physical activity with other people that rarely appeals to me for some reason. <laughs> well, as I said, it's the fastest growing sport in America. So this is basically the way that Christians must transform the culture. If so, if you're not playing pickleball, then you're probably not on mission. I'm going to go for my Amish <laughs> community on that note. All right, friends, with that said, this has been Simply Faithful. We're so glad that you've joined us. If you appreciated this conversation, we'd love it if you shared it with someone else or kept the discussion going outside of this podcast. Follow us on Instagram. We are at Simply Faithful Pod. We're also on Facebook. We also have a website, simplyfaithful.org. We'd love to see you online. With that said, my name is Eric. I'm Gray. And this has been Simply Faithful. 